No Direction Network presents Pfizercon 2022 Seminar Coverage. For more great convention coverage, check out NoDirectionPodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Glorian Adventures Old and New panel. Uh, we're going to be talking about Adventures Old and New. That's uh, what's on the tin. Uh, my name is James Jacobs. I'm the creative director for Pathfinder. And why don't we have our wonderful uh, other panel members introduce themselves here with uh, starting with uh, you, Vanessa. I'm Vanessa Hoskins. I am a freelancer who writes for Paizo quite a bit, um, mostly known for Adventure Paths, also a host of No Direction, and a performer on No Direction Adventurous and Roll for Combat's Three Ring Adventure. And Leo. And I'm Leo Glass. Uh, I'm the managing editor at Paizo. Uh, I'm also a freelance writer uh, uh, for Paizo and for some other folks. So I've written uh, a few different Pathfinder Society uh, scenarios and, and quests, as well as uh, recently co-authored uh, a Pathfinder adventure with James Jacobs uh, and some Starfinder adventures. So been around that block too, and I'm really happy to be here. Cool. So um, I think for the start, let me just talk about some of the uh, standalone adventures that we've got coming up. Um, we've got uh, uh, Two new stand, well, two standalone adventures uh, coming out later this year. One of them just came out, but uh, before that, we've also got uh, Kingmaker, which is it's a standalone adventure, I guess, but it's also an adventure path. It's something that we've been working on for a couple of years, and it's finally, you know, it's at the printer right now, so it should be available later uh, this year. Um, and uh, it's 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 easily the largest adventure product we've ever tackled. Um, it's got the adventure path itself, which has a couple hundred extra pages. There's a companion guy, which is filled with a bunch of adventures beyond that. Um, uh, one of the things that was exciting about Kingmaker, of course, is when we first did it, we were really rushed for time and resources. We didn't have a lot of, you know, opportunities to really give it a lot of uh, the art support that it needed. So uh, there's a lot of new art in this in this book. So let's uh, bring up that first one as an iconic uh, image of uh, uh, one of the one of the major battles that, that happens in Kingmaker where, <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of a battle that happens in Kingmaker. It happens off screen where this giant owl bear attacks your, your, the capital that you built. Um, one of the fun things with, with Pathfinder second edition is the better support for downtime rules. So while your player characters aren't in town, when the owl bear attacks your home, your capital, you still get to play it out in the, in the form of a downtime encounter. And based on how the results of that encounter plays out, when you face the owlbear in its lair later on, you're going to have an advantage or a disadvantage. So, so that's uh, um, we've got a lot of lot of like I was saying, new art. Uh, we've got four new adventures in the uh, adventure path itself. It goes from first level to twentieth level, and uh, it's it's got so much content in there that by my count, if you were to go through every encounter and just start building up XP as you go, you're going to hit twentieth level well before you get to the end. So, there's a lot of room in there for GMs to you know pick and choose what they want to focus on. Um, so, uh, after Kingmaker, we've got an, uh, one actually, I believe is out right now, or if not out now, really soon, it's always kind of weird for me to keep track of when something is done and sent to the printer and is actually out to be purchased. Uh, but that would be shadows at sundown. Um, we've got a adventure here that it goes back to one of the older locations we used to, um, do a fair amount with, uh, Corvosa and, and it's. The idea with uh, Shadows at Sundown is I wanted to do sort of a, 
an experiment with what happens as sort of a sequel to an adventure path and um, taking the events of previous adventures set in Corvosa as a, as a ground zero and going from there. And uh, one of the, there's going to be spoilers in this adventure path discussion, in this adventure discussion, so I'll try to keep them minimal. But one of the main things that's going on here, as you'll see in, in this image, the second image here, um, is uh, Queen Eliosa's ghost is back in town and she's made out of blood and smoke and she's coming out of, out of you know, in the dark after, after sunset. And your player characters have to come in and figure out why Queen Eliosa is haunting Corvosa. And uh, it's a pretty, uh, it's, it's a fun adventure because it builds off of a lot of themes that have been established in Curse of the Crimson Throne and some other adventure path, um, some other standalone adventures. And uh, so it's, it's got this weird sort of situation where if you have played these adventures before, there's a little advice in there on like how to build in your characters and previous encounters and all that, but it's very much self-contained as well. So if you've never played through Curse of the Crimson Throne, you can, you can play this one as well. Um, so yeah, that's uh, Shadows of Sundown. That's out now, I believe. Um, and uh, as with all of these standalone adventures, we've got uh, support in the form of flip mats that uh, help you to, you know, present the, the, some of the iconic locations that you get to adventure through. So um, then later on in the year, um, we've got something that was originally going to be a first edition adventure. It started even before Pathfinder. And uh, that's the uh, crown of the cold King. We took three of the adventures that um, originally the very first adventure we actually published for Pathfinder um, hollow's last hope, which was sort of a preview for Galarian and and then the first uh, standalone adventure, uh, Crown of the Cobalt King. And then a little bit later, we did sort of a semi-sequel with Hungry Are the Dead. Um, this book, uh, and let's uh, get the third picture up so we can see the, the, the Cobalt King giving orders and barking commands and doing his thing to all of his Cobalt minions. Um, this is a 128-page hardcover, uh, kind of deluxe adventure. And like I said, it brings those three previous adventures together to sort of make a full experience so rather than have three separate adventures with three different plots um this is more of a, a classic you know small town with a problem going on and, and a large dungeon that you explore and um it also touches upon a lot of like the really kind of deep uh history of the setting as well like uh, the the seals that keep tarbath on in place and, and uh so we didn't update the the timeline for this one this one still takes place 10 years ago basically so it's not a a remake it's 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 more of a re republication and a reorganization of it um sort of like what we're doing with kingmaker and before with uh rise of the rune lords and curse of the crimson throne uh but it's also got a brand new level that uh we had nick logue write for us uh well, a while back and we were like i said we were originally going to do this book uh for second edition or for first edition and so there's a fourth of uh, uh, a deeper level below anything we've ever published before uh, that is kind of brings everything to a, a, a close. You get to find out where the Crowbull King's crown was actually crafted. And um, just if you, you played through the previous adventures, there's new content waiting for you. Um, one thing that we specifically didn't include here was there was a, another, another adventure in this line uh, that featured the Crowbull King coming back from the dead. Um, since that's a sequel to what we're doing here, it didn't feel appropriate to include that in this one. So it's also a big section about Falcon's Hollow, which is, um, it's interesting going back and looking at that one because where you have like Sandpoint and Atari and a couple of the other small iconic villages that, that are like starter places for your player characters to explore. 
um, that they're, they're, they're nice places to live, even though there's a lot of, you know, monster stuff going on. Falcon's Hollow is not really a nice place to live. There's some awful things going on in there. And, um, I like the idea of, of this being sort of that a trope of adventure where it's like, not necessarily for heroes, but for, I don't want to use the word murder hobo, but it's like for the classic adventures are just in it for their own, you know, group or their own goals and stuff like that. So mercenary adventures. Exactly. So that's basically what we've got plotted for the rest of the year for the standalone adventures line. We're going to be doing more of them, of course, uh, next year. Uh, we don't have anything to announce quite yet, but, uh, we're going to be doing a couple that are brand new adventures. Um, leaning more toward a uh, lower level stuff so that there's like entry level stuff and uh touching on some classic locations uh some new locations and uh i i hope to be able to chat about them in a couple months so that's it for what's really coming up soon in the adventure path line so uh let's uh talk a little bit how adventures are made uh Vanessa, you've you've written a bunch of adventures for us. So why don't you talk to uh, us a little bit about how your methods on writing adventures? Sure. Uh, so first you get an outline from your developer. And that, depending on the developer, might be a pretty tight outline. It might be looser, uh, depending on their particular style and how much of your input they want on the process. It, it just varies on the project. And the first thing I usually do is I start to concept all of the gray space in there, all of the, we know here's point A and we know here's D, but what's B and C look like? And I figure that out next. Um, and, and the first process is really just expanding that outline and making sure I know all of the maps I'm going to need, all the rooms that are going to be there, that sort of thing. Um, I do a process with creatures where I, I like to go through the, the base series and all available creatures to me like that are level appropriate for that area and really ask myself looking at each one, could this work? Um, maybe a variant of it, maybe uh, an elite or a weak version. And if I like it, I put it on a list and I can move on. And the nice part is I build a list of potential candidates to fill this adventure path, uh, this adventure path volume or scenario volume. And because I've stopped to take a look at each one, take a look at the art, the theme, I can really figure out does this does this make sense for this adventure? And it also sort of allows me to have a stable of, I have some different types of creatures, undead and aberrations, and try to mix up the, the creature types so it's not all so samey. Uh, once I've done all that, I figure out who's going to go into which room and put them all in. Uh, and I, I like to build the actual text of the adventure slowly over time, the way one might build up eye makeup. Uh, where you start with a little and you work your way out and work your way up. Uh, and, and more and more detail. So usually by the time I'm ready to do my last pass, I have a, a document that has all of my headers formatted, all of my sections for creatures and hazards and treasure and all of that. And when I write, it also allows me to readdress, well, I've talked about this dusty storeroom and I know that I wanted to hide like uh, a key to a vault or something in there. Is there a hazard? Maybe this is so old and dusty that the shelves are going to fall apart when you start messing with them. So if you search or pick up the key, uh, the shelves might fall in on you. And it's like, oh, that's a good idea. Uh, so I, 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 I write all that stuff out. My very last pass uh, with the text is really just filling in all the room descriptions and the box text and all of that. And by this time, I have looked at and considered each one of those sections multiple times through the initial concepting and reading out the outline, uh, looking at the monsters, and finally uh, 
building out the text that you're, you know, I'm going to hand over to the developer eventually and finally editing. And then the very last thing, and I, I think this is key, is loot. Because you have to be careful to give enough loot, but not too much. And it's, it's, a, it's a delicate balancing process. And that's usually the last thing I do. If there are creatures that have loot naturally, uh, like NPCs or guards or, uh, you know, the evil wizard or something, they're going to have their own set of loot. And I don't worry so much about what that value is while I'm writing the adventure. I look at it at the last pass. So I'll go through and kind of spot where all the valuables are in the entire adventure and mark those down and figure out how much I've given out. And usually, and I think this is pretty cool, uh, what I'll do is I'll have uh, zero amounts in places that can be flexible. So quest rewards, um, if there's like a box full of gems or a box full of coins, uh, different things like that that I'll, I'll speckle into the adventure but not give a, a value to them yet. So that when I do that big loot bit at the end, I can say, oh, geez, I'm missing like 132 gold that I should be giving out. And I can distribute it among those quest rewards and then those valuables and art pieces and things like that. And it makes doing the loot really easy. Um, there's a little bit of spreadsheet magic that happens to keep track of it all. Uh, if you are interested, let me know. I have a sanitized version that you can use for your own purposes. I'll try to put that up somewhere maybe for download. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the, front to, to back part of it. At this point, I've written enough adventure paths that I don't, or, or adventures, I should say, that often playtesting is like, I kind of know how a lot of them are going to go. But if I have a, a set piece combat, um, there was a Starfinder adventure, I won't spoil which one, but the BBEG is a big stone monolith that's haunted and basically keeps calling in these ghosts. And that was a little weird of concept. So I'll, I'll playtest those just to make sure that that the encounters that are more outside the box are landing properly. Uh, I think playtesting is really important in those sorts of things. Cool. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, yeah. Once, once the, the, once the author of the adventure is done, it gets sent in and then the developer takes it and does a pass on it, goes through and uh, kind of, if, if it's an adventure path, the big part of the development is to make the entire thing have one voice, but it's also kind of an initial, just sort of just a second set of eyes on it. Um, the developer will sometimes have to you know do new map maps or, or do a lot of other work um but the 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 biggest thing that i try to do when i develop an adventure is to figure out what the author is is talking about and try to maintain as much of their voice and their um personality i guess and the adventure as possible um that you shouldn't ever really see the developer's a role in 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 writing it so once that's all done and it's Can all I, kind of like wrapped up and yeah go for it i also want to add to that as an author one thing that i found was really helpful along the way is i would have a choice that i've made specifically for like a, a really um like a very finite reason like uh druids or creatures with uh, the ability to move through rough terrain will have a better time here or something like that and it's important as an author uh, use that comment feature. It doesn't change your word count. And you can explain um, this is set up specifically to foreshadow for later, or this is specifically for characters that have this class feature. And that lets the developer know when they're going through and they say, why did she pick this? That seems a little odd. And they say, oh, okay, now I understand. And so I think if you have a, a very specific choice uh, that you're making that colors or reflects on the rest of the adventure, absolutely let your developer know uh, through those comments. So either as they're developing it, they'll see your your reasoning and decide, is that what's best for the adventure path? 
That's absolutely incredibly good advice. Uh, I mean, it's also great, like, if you're pulling a super obscure character from canon, say, like, this is from Pathfinder yeah. 27, page 44, you know, um, it's 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 really easy to to lose sight of those things once you're developing things, and those comments are really cool. So once that's all nice and, and wrapped up, the next step is it goes over to edit. So, Leo, I'd, uh, like I said, you've, you've edited adventures, you've uh, written adventures, so you, I think, are in a pretty solid place to talk about like what really works for making something easy at what goes in what what is editing an adventure path or an adventure sure well and and i I think a lot of folks don't even realize that it it doesn't uh it, it begins really from minute one right like you talked about the outline james and as soon as you uh create that outline we have an edit lead who and it starts there uh the edit lead helps and and just gives advice that first pass on the outline uh to understand does the narrative structure serve the brand of, of Paizo? Uh, does it does it play and, and look like it's going to play well? Are there any story beats that need to be improved? Do the upbeats work when the upbeats should be there? Do the downbeats work? Um, is the outline organized in a way that we think the writer will be successful to help the developer, but also help uh, edit and art because we all have to collaborate? So there's uh, there's even a very early step there where we're all collaborating and talking. And I really appreciate uh, having worked with you several times, uh, James, that you not only do a great job, I feel like uh, incorporating the author's voice, but you also work with a lot of the other team members to make sure we're all prepared to do well. So it really starts really early in the process, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and then, yeah, once you've done your development pass, it, it goes to us and, and it edits at a really interesting Position. I love the way the edit system uh, where our, our process works at, at Paizo because we get what's called a, a, a pre-layout pass. So we get a chance to do pre-layout editing there, uh, which I'll explain in a second. And then it goes to art for layout. And then it comes back to us for a post-layout pass. Uh, and so, you know, in my experience writing uh, uh, adventures, it's really interesting. Uh, as Vanessa said, when you're in that very early concepting stage, you're trying to fill in those blanks for, okay, the, the developer gave me A and D, but now I'm trying to fill in B and C. It's interesting uh, as an editor because I get to see uh, what the developer did to figure out, uh, you know, A through F <laughs> that sort of thing after the, the development pass is done. But then, you know, things will even change after layout uh, and then, you know, we'll add more component pieces. But the, the pre-layout pass for me... Um, I have a lot of fun with them because I think they're a great chance to collaborate with the developer. And, and like James said, I think you put it very well, is we're trying to unify the voice of the authors the best we can, um, but also really pull out those themes and just crank them to 11 if they need to be uh, overemphasized or reemphasized and uh, make them more muted uh, and subtle when subtlety is appropriate as well, because there are some themes that maybe you want to subvert uh, the discourse a little bit uh, and make things uh, creepy, but also intriguing and, you know, and, and things that will also engage a lot of the different play styles. Some players play for expression, some play for combat and, and dominance, and some players uh, focus on exploration. So we're thinking about those things. And so the pre-layout pass is really an opportunity to yes, we are copy editing. That's part of what we do. Uh, but we're also doing narrative and structural editing and developmental editing in support of the developers uh, and thinking and asking questions and working very collaboratively. James, you know, it's it's not in a, a vacuum, is it? Right? Like when I edit something, I'm sending you a pretty long list of questions usually <laughs> and saying, hey, what were you thinking here? What do we want to do here? Um, and often, you know, because the developer worked with 
uh, uh, you know, Vanessa or another author, um, we can sometimes even get to what do you think the author intended? What were we trying to do? What did you intend when you wrote the outline? Uh, and just and just uh, streamline and and really make things. I, I think make things sing. And and while the developer needs to be in the background and, and move the author up, the editor needs to do that as well. Uh, and and we're going to uh, help move along the developer's uh, voice and purpose as well as the author's uh, to unify them as much as possible. So I really like pre layout pass editing because I think it's a phenomenal way to support both of those folks. Uh, and I think if, if it's done really well, you'll see it uh, in adventure. Some of my favorite adventures, I know all the background work that happened to make them um, not only read really well and be very usable and the rules text be very easy to understand and, and GM, uh, but also just very fun and engaging and explore really difficult and, and fun concepts and uh, things throughout the wonderful uh uh, Galarian setting, the Age of Lost Omen setting. So um, that's kind of pre-layout. Uh, and like I said, you're doing you're doing some copy editing, you're doing some narrative editing there. Uh, you're also doing some style editing. A lot of people don't realize that you can do a lot of style editing in Microsoft Word. So there's a, a lot of different lenses there. You're also, if you can catch it, doing canonical editing. Um, sometimes, you know, there, there's, uh, for me, when I've written adventures and I work with the setting every day, but people are human. Uh, and sometimes they might do something strange where, uh, you know, they'll, the, they'll uh, misrepresent a detail from a, from a setting book or uh, not think about the way uh, a setting deal contradicts things. It's setting detail contradicts uh, something we've already established. And so there's some canonical editing as well. I love editing because there's lenses. There's, there's a lot of different facets. Uh, to it. So once it goes to layout, um, we don't have it for a little while. We're working on other things. And then it eventually comes to us for post layout editing. And, and this is where we're now, the art is in. We can see, we can check things, uh, you know, like do all the elves look like Pathfinder elves? Uh, uh, does everything align with, you know, um, did again? because we're involved in kind of watching things from minute one. Did the original direction uh, get represented all the way through to the look of the product? And now we're doing more format editing as well, still copy editing, but we're also doing map editing and making sure that all of the map locations are labeled correctly. Uh, do the maps actually make sense? Uh, if, a, if a large room is described in the text being in the northwest corner of a cathedral, for example, is it actually in the northwest corner? Uh, does that usability map um, all of those types of things? So it's just a lot of uh, you know I've, I've I've joked that I feel like the whole process, not just editing, development, art, uh, authorship, uh, 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 working in synergy, is a little bit like building an airplane in the dark at times. Uh, there's technical pieces that need to come in. Uh, there's more. Uh, sort of like explanatory pieces because you, you have to teach, you know, people like pilots to fly the plane and, and all that sort of stuff too, uh, but still sort of know how it all fits together so that the plane lifts off and gets passengers where it needs to go. And, and at times, like Vanessa said, you don't know what those parts are and you have to just make them up and see if they fit. So you're kind of building a puzzle as you go. But in the post layout stage, you've got a lot of those pieces uh, and you're just making them all fit together. So we're smoothing everything out. We're making sure things are formatted correctly and stat blocks are formatted correctly, et cetera. So uh, long story short, that's sort of uh, from start to finish the editing process. Cool. Thank you. Um, 
that's that's where the bulk of the work for um the, the word side of things goes on in adventures um we also have the design team come in to to spot check new rules elements uh we've got um martin and eric mona the publisher you know making sure that the adventures that we are want to do are going to serve the brand um that usually happens even well before the outline stage when it's just being concepted uh the art side of thing is huge uh that's a place where the developer works with the the uh, art department to make sure that the maps and the illustrations are all uh, right. Uh, one of the parts of the process that I actually, I don't know, I, I enjoy it, but I don't know that every developer really enjoys it is the copy fitting stage where it's like, it's been mm. through writing, editing, development, and it's been put into the, the document, all the arts in there. And you get it back and it's like, well, there's a page, a blank page, or it's too long by a page. And that's a place where, um, I mean, it's myself as the developer, I, I like that challenge of like, how do I cut a page of content and keep the adventure still viable? Or how do I expand to fill a page that needs more content that doesn't just feel like it's being padded? And that challenge is, is really, um, it's, it's exciting to me because it's just something that has to happen really, really quickly. So it doesn't take a, you don't have like weeks and weeks and weeks to, to develop it. Um, and a lot of my like favorite little flourishes and adventures happen at that point, because it's particularly when you have to like build new content uh, to fill a page where it's like, you may be able to put in a full stat block for something where you only had a short one before, or a lot of times I'll, I'll add it at the end of a section where, you know, it'll impact the flow of text less. So it's like, there's more interesting, like continuing the adventure tidbits and stuff like that. And this is a case where uh, the developer and the uh, editor have to really work uh, hand in hand because editors have already gone through a bunch of it. So if you write anything new, you got to make sure the editor knows like, Hey, I added another column of text here. And you really check it out and uh, make sure. Cause um, one thing I've certainly learned as a writer is that if any of your unedited text ever goes to print, you look foolish. And, uh, it's, it's without, 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 you know, it's just, it's editing. The editing side of thing is just so important. So. Thanks. Um, we love it. <laughs> yay. Uh, so we've got, uh, you know, about a half hour left. So that's pretty much all that uh, I think I really had to, to chat about. Um, why don't we open it up to chat? If anyone has adventure questions about specific adventures or the process of writing, developing, or editing adventures, um, we will see what we can do about, uh, about answering them. And um, yeah, widows and orphans is something. Why don't you talk real quick <laughs> about widows and orphans? That's something that I think a lot of people maybe don't realize is, mm -hmm. is something that can really impact the readability. It really uh, can. Lee, that's a, yeah, yeah, it really can. And I think that, uh, you know, I've worked on several technical editing teams. I've been a technical editor for over 10 years now. And I will say that the Paizo team, in my opinion, is one of the best formatting editing teams uh, in the, the industry, I think. Uh, but also, um, just of all the different types of teams I worked on, we are, um, I think, Eric, and this is where, you know, we've talked about uh, all of our different roles, uh, but this is where the publisher's input help too it's funny uh if you think about it because people would think widows and orphans those those are but yes eric eric uh talks about the vision of the products and usability and things looking nice on the page and again when i talk about uh, the pathfinder brand and baseline that's what i'm talking about is we want them to, to feel like there's a lot there 
um, and the, the page is full of all sorts of really cool things that you can you can play and, and uh, interact with, but also uh, that, you know, headings map to things easily. Uh, and widows and orphans are, are really good at, you know, knocking off uh, uh, headings or other page elements that will make things really hard to read. Um, and so, you you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll shoot James a, a message when we're working together and say, hey, I need a couple lines here. Uh, I don't need them because anything's really wrong. I can just see what the page should look like. And I want to get rid of maybe one hanging word or two hanging words without tracking it in or tracking it out to do it. Uh, and James is always great about, yes, I know exactly. And again, in copy fit, maybe something came out like, yeah, let's plug this back in or I'll just make something up that, that's really cool. You know, give these lines a, a, another look. Uh, and so it's, it's really fun that in some ways, something as small as a widow or as small as an orphan can, can, involve a lot of people, but also have a really big impact uh, on the overall look and feel of the adventure. So only Ooh. intact family units. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, let's see a couple of Kingmaker questions actually coming up. I can answer those real quick. Uh, how did Kingmaker for second edition turn out? Uh, it turned out, I think, really well. It's, it's like I said, the large, it's the adventure path itself is as big as the core rule book. It's 640 pages. Uh, so that's Jeez. tied for the largest book we've ever published. Um, when you add in oh. the uh, 128 pages of additional content for the companion guide, that's the largest single adventure we've ever published. Um, and then, of course, there's the first edition and fifth edition best areas on top of that. So it's, it's, it came out really well. I've got a, a proof of life type thing here. Like here's a page that I printed out for the, the kingdom sheet. Uh, hold it up long enough oh, for yeah. people to maybe look at it, then I'll jank it away. But yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's got a lot of it's got a lot of really cool stuff in there. I I, I really like how so much of Kingmaker relies on the idea of downtime and and uh, uh, encounter mode versus exploration mode versus downtime mode, and that was something that didn't really exist as much for us to play with in um, first edition. I mean, we obviously could, but there was no framework for it. And there's a framework in, in uh, second edition, we can do that. So like we have an encounter where you have to go get a, a rock egg from the top of a mountain so that uh, this guy can make a giant omelet. And um, <laughs> of course that allows us, yeah, that allows us to build an, a, a bespoke activity for you to use in downtime and make skill checks and stuff to handle that whole thing without having to role play out like, oh, well, you're going to have to do all of this stuff and i'm gonna have to you know make stuff up on the on the fly so it, it works a little it works a, a lot better in a lot of ways um somebody does ask was kingmaker revised a bit so the big bad gets a little more heads up earlier uh yeah it, it was but kingmaker is always meant to be a sandbox where what you make of it is what you you, you get to, to frame the story but um we originally when we did kingmaker a lot of the feedback was we want an adventure path where we don't know the big bad guy and it's just a sandbox and we just get to do whatever we do and so we did that and then we immediately got feedback it's like we we want adventure paths with storylines that are through lines all the way through so it's kind of you can't win situation but yeah but definitely there's a lot more um foreshadowing of what's going on with the the uh the 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 through line of kingmaker and that is because in part because of owlcat's uh, computer game uh, did a lot of work there for us as well. So we took a lot of inspiration from that as well. So let's see here. Um, here's a question for us all to answer. If we could, if we could make a direct sequel to an adventure path, what would it be? Um, for myself, I've 
uh, Return of the Rune Lords was something that was intended to happen from almost day one. But um, I would love to see a sequel to Iron Gods, personally. That's that's the biggest one yes. I would like to do a sequel. Oh, is that that's your... Is that that your that, well, you haven't made a different one, Vanessa. <laughs> we, we, All right, well, now Leo has to go first, so I can think of my okay. runner-up. Oh, no! Oh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I'm going to cheat a little bit because it just kind of got made. Uh, the one I really wanted to see was I really wanted a uh, focus on Geb uh, sort of gray area adventure. And Bloodlords, for me, was filling that, that adventure that I really wanted to see. So I'm actually kind of getting my cake right now uh, with, with Bloodlords coming out because uh, that's I really like uh, to run games where the party can be... Uh, sort of uh, agnostic to morality a little bit and just serve their interests, but also serve their family that is the party a little bit and and sort of find themselves amidst parties that are serving their own interests uh, and some sort of sometimes be in, in between a rock and a hard place. Uh, and so frankly, while it's not a, a sequel, uh, Bloodlords is really scratching an itch for me that uh, I, I'm really excited about. Nice. Uh, here's here's one, uh, Vanessa. Is there any? Oh wait, Vanessa. Yeah, I'm not. You almost got away with not having to pick. I know. I, did, up. I did pick one, and it's kind of a hybrid. Uh, so we had way back in the day uh, the oh shoot, uh, it happens at West Crown something for West Crown. Anyway, Council all these Chelyax adventures. Yes, Council of Thieves. Thank you. So we had Council of Thieves. We have Hell's Vengeance. We have Hell's Rebels. We have a lot of stuff happening in Chelyax. I want to go back there. I want to see like now that. Spoiler alert, uh, Kintargo is off by itself. How did that change the rest of Cheliax? Are more people looking to break free? Is there unrest? Like, what's going on there? And I kind of want to see more development in Cheliax. I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out. Cool. Uh, Vanessa, yeah. is there an element or trope that you always try to include in adventures that you write that you think work really well for audiences? I'm going to just say in general, humor. Um, a lot of the time, these games are played like around a table and we're having fun and we're just chatting and two things. One is humorous moments, I think really stick with us. And you remember the time that you had to do this silly thing or this, this event happened and can spur big moments at a table for characters to shine are the sorts of things that people then talk about, you know, five, six, seven years later. And they're like, Oh, remember when we played that adventure and so-and-so's character was ridiculous. And you're like, yes, I sure do. Uh, so I always try to inject some humor, even in more dire things, uh, like in the threefold conspiracy, the, um, in, in the chapter for that one, it's very X-Files things in the wall, but I still try to put in little moments that are like, Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. Even if they're just like, Here's a, a flickering computer screen, and it was MMO games that are on it, or you know, something like that, where people just go, "Okay, <laughs> these lab scientists are just like us." Um, and I think that's really important to have in there. And in a way, it's it's sometimes just having a little bit of levity in it, like a horror, a scary thing, is also extremely useful because it can be so heavy and uh, and suspenseful that sometimes having a moment of levity can uh, give you that relief that you need, that emotional relief which then allows you to be scared all over again when suddenly there's a, a creek coming from down the hall or something. That's a great answer. Um, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. That's I, I try to put in, I, I really lean in hard to the horror elements in a lot of stuff I've written. Horror, humor is a great. You? 
Believe it or not, uh, Leo. What about you? What what do you think is uh, something important to put in adventures that you write? Uh, So I, I I really would echo uh, what was said. However, I will say that I like to subvert my own themes quite a bit because what I want, I, I, I will say that if I find myself gravitating towards a trope, I want a player to see that trope, uh, but then go, wait a minute, is this really what this is about? Uh, And explore that because, and I, and I understand that we, you know, we're making role-playing games, but to me, I learned so much about not only myself, uh, but storytelling through playing games. Uh, and, you know, games are uh, the world and the setting are vessels for us to explore ourselves, but each other, because we collaborate and we role play together, right? We, you know, a party of one isn't much fun at all. Uh, a party of four uh, is a good time. So um, for me, I think a lot about that. And so like, for example, when I wrote Unforgiving Fire, um, that really started, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't called that at the time, but as I explored with Mike Sayer, the developer on the project, as we were writing that quest, uh, it really came to me about forgiveness. And so as I was writing the quote unquote evil care, like the big bad, uh, at the end, uh, they weren't so evil at all. And I know James, as we talked about Kingmaker forgiveness is a central theme of Kingmaker. And there were lots of yes. times that we talked about uh, supporting that theme, but even, you know, undermining it a little bit and letting that balance be there the players um and so um for me uh i think you know like with unforgiving fire we thought about forgiveness and how to explore that but then i said well what if the players don't forgive uh and and just to give them the opportunity to make a choice uh and how can that be impactful and memorable to the party uh as well and so for me i yeah it can i I think of tropes but then i think about how can i subvert them just a little bit to add some so if i put humor in I might put it in a situation that shouldn't be humorous <laughs> at all uh, to let them deal with that juxtaposition. Uh, and, uh, you know, that'll be memorable e- either way. So for sure. Uh, question here. Did Hell Knight Hill get any errata? Had a few complaints from players saying they felt the story was fell flat or something. We don't do errata for Adventure Pass. Uh, they are on a monthly schedule. We just don't have the time or the capacity to go back and issue errata and constantly change things. One of the parts, one of the one of the truths of, of doing adventures is you've got to get to a point where it's like, that's the adventure. I, I just want to let it go out and be do its thing. Um, one of the issues with uh, Age of Ashes, of course, is that when we wrote that, we didn't have the rules. The rules were still being worked on. <laughs> and so much of the, the playtest of the rules was so focused on getting the player character experience dialed in as, as right as possible. And that's the way it had to be done. Uh, the the playtesting of how adventures are built and how monsters work and how treasure is is given out and and all of that, we were kind of doing our, we had to basically make it up as we went uh, because that was something that nobody really had any experience with. And so we did our best. Um, kind of, I had to have all of the authors write those adventures as if they were first edition because they just they didn't have the full access to the rules and then as they came along as the rules uh, finished up i was able to go back and try to make things work um the one exception to that is if we compile an adventure path into a hardcover format at that point it's essentially a reprint and we will go through and incorporate a rata like a good example there is um abomination vaults got uh, compiled and that one um worked pretty well uh, ron lundine is the one that, that developed it but one element in particular that i know i was like shaking my fist at uh there's a character a little bit of spoilers mr beak who is a 
uh, Soulbound Doll. And uh, the way Mr. Beak is presented in The Bestiary, uh, his choice for a, for a neutral evil spell, I think, it's, it's, it's not appropriate for a CR2 creature. It was just a, a, a mistake made in the development of that stat block. And it didn't really show up as a mistake until we saw it actually in play. So Mr. Beak's having a um, overly powerful spell that is just unfair to use in a second level character uh, has been something that we've errated in the actual um, bestiary. And then you see that I believe um, is then carried forward into the, the reversion of uh, the revision of, of the adventure path. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Not um, to mention Mr. Beaks is also in a room with a dangerous floor. So if you go down from yeah. the unfair spell, yeah. You you're in a world of hurt real fast. That said, I'm also I'm an uh an old timer from the the dawn of RPGs, and one of the things that I saw really back you know before the internet and all that, the thing that really made adventure stay out stack out was the ones that were really dangerous and deadly. I mean, Tomb of Horrors is is one that everybody seems to remember, not because it's necessarily a great adventure, but because it's so dangerous and so deadly. Um, and I'm just looking back at games that I've run, I don't really remember the points where my characters, you know, survive without a, a, a fear or my players had no problems. I remember the point, the close calls or the TPKs or those sorts of things. So I kind of think that adding in a couple of points in an adventure where it is actually really dangerous for your party, I think makes the adventure stronger. It's, it's something that maybe not everybody will agree with, but if it's a cakewalk all the time, um, it's not as memorable. So, I mean, that said, Mr. Beak yeah. is a bit beyond the pale, but I mean, you look like it, uh, other <laughs> characters throughout uh, the history, and it's the ones that are maybe too powerful to get the most traction. So it's kind of a... Yeah. Well, I also think act. that in terms, of, <laughs> in terms of adventures old and new, going from first edition to second, there are some design concepts that as an author or developer that we need to sort of unlearn from first edition that worked there mm -hmm. but don't work now. And one of the big ones is the solo fight against the BBEG, right? Because before the math was a little looser, uh, that you could sort of get away with that. And yeah, they're a little strong, but you'll try to play to your strengths and you'll be okay. Now, because the math is so tight, which is a benefit of the system, the drawback is if you're fighting something several levels higher than you, yeah, it doesn't have the action economy, but it is so difficult to engage with that creature in a meaningful way. And so one thing I think folks will notice is as adventure paths and uh, society scenarios are released, you'll see fewer big solo monsters and more, it's the BBEG and their, and their entourage. Uh, so that way you can spread that encounter, that severe encounter uh, around instead of just putting it all on one creature that is uh, so intimidating. You're like, oh, we don't want to fight this now. Uh, so I, th I think that's a, a change that a lot of those early adventure paths hadn't figured that out yet because in first edition, that was what you do. You say, well, here's the big bad fight and I don't want to water it down with a bunch of minions. I just want the big bad. And it's a little, it's a little challenging to do that these days. You have to be very careful. Yeah. That's a great example of, of the difference in first edition and second edition, um, mm -hmm. uh, encounter design. And it's something that it took a couple of years for us to, to really figure out because by the time yeah. we get feedback from an adventure path, uh, like we got feedback from Age of Ashes that people have played it through enough. Um, we're already mm -hmm. we're working on Abomination Balls practically. So there's there's like yeah. a two year delay between, oh, we need to fix this. Let's fix it. So 
Oh. Yeah, domination vault, but I know I snuck in and I was like looking mm-hmm. back going, oh, that's going to be a doozy. <laughs> yeah, I, but it's also, I mean, a case with abomination vaults, it's one of the goals there was that I'm glad we, we compiled it because it's yeah. it's a mega dungeon. It's the whole point mm-hmm. is that you should be able to, you know, make your own way. It's a sandbox to a certain extent. And if you mm-hmm. go to a mm-hmm. place that's too dangerous for you, you should go back upstairs and, and fight other yes. things or something like that. So, uh, yeah, and, and you can just avoid that big thing and go, uh, there's something big and scary in there. And we ran away and we'll come back in a level or two, like when we're prepared. Yeah. So we can get away <laughs> with it there a little bit, but yeah. Uh, let's see here. Um, Wrath of the Righteous and Mythic for Pathfinder 2. Is that a non starter or is it something that we're going to be doing sooner or later? Um, there's a lot of stories I'd love to tell, uh, particularly involving like standing up kaiju or demigods or something like that. But until we have player side rules that allow that to integrate well, um, those stories are kind of going to be on hold. Uh, that's something I'd love to do, but that's more of a, a question for the design team and um, you know for Eric and the marketing team to to really decide: Do we want to expand the power range of Pathfinder? So let us know if you are interested in that. Of, of course. Um, Let's see here. Uh, how hard is it to put a sympathetic villain into an adventure path? And if you could make one, what would a rough idea be? I think they should all be sympathetic or mostly uh-huh. be sympathetic. You're going to get the actual demon that just wants to eat and destroy everybody and doesn't care. Sure. But I think when we're talking about like humanoid villains, like people who are corrupt officials in the city of Absalom, something like that. They can't just be mustache twirly. Uh, if they are, they're very flat, they're very one note, and there's no way for the party to really care about them. I think what you want in a villain is someone who has just chosen the wrong path, who's just made bad choices, and all of a sudden is in a place that you might see how they got there. You might even sympathize and say, yeah, the the problem you're trying to fix is understandable or the position you're coming from is is a valid one, but you're just going about it the wrong way. And even if they won't listen to reason at this point and you still have to fight them, at least if you understand where they're coming from, they're a lot more accessible and it makes for a better story. Uh, I, I look at like Outlaws of Star. everyone knows it's about uh, this big mogul who's got all this money and he just wants money and power. And you're like, uh, yeah, that guy's not redeemable. But you can still see the environment he's in where he's like, no, money is everything in Alkenstar. That's how you get power. And if you want to be anything in this town, uh, you know, you're going to have to step on the backs of other people. And though you mis- may disagree with that, based on how Alkenstar is, you say, yeah, I, I can kind of see how you got there. I still don't like you. I still want to take you down. Uh, <laughs> but I can kind of get where you're coming from. And it, and it makes the villains more uh, real and more accessible. It also broadens you- your to your point, Vanessa. Sorry, uh, it, it broadens the uh, uh, encounters you can have with them too, right? Like by having some sort of entry point. Yes, you can fight them, but you can also debate them or find yourself mm-hmm. in some sort of strange social interaction. So, yeah, I I, I yep. completely agree. Uh, not to keep referencing Unforgiving Fire, but when I was writing Malika, I went, she has to be. Uh, sympathetic to me, and I know James, we've talked about this a little bit, especially with Kingmaker, but like a a good villain is sort of the domino that creates cause and effect, and cause and effect should propel uh, propel an adventure 
forward so that it doesn't feel coincidental or just like things are being, you know, we know we're writing them, but we don't want you to know uh, we're writing them because we want you to feel immersed uh, in the in yeah. the story, right? And, and, a, and a sympathetic uh, and convincing villain with real motivations does that. It helps mm. you because you have motivations. You're thinking about the background for your character, et cetera, and it unifies it all together. So yeah, I, I agree 100% with everything Vanessa said, but that's my only add there. Yeah, I, I, it's it's absolutely true. I think rather than making, for me, rather than making trying to go out of way to make your villain sympathetic, I think giving them motivation, giving them a reason why at least the GM can see why they're doing their things. They're doing. I mean, that's something I've always. That's back to burnt offerings at first uh, adventure path. Mm -hmm. The main villain mm -hmm. there is Nualia, who is basically gathered. She wants to become a demon and has gathered a bunch of goblins together to go raise uh, Sandpoint to the ground. And your job as the adventurers is to go stop her. But you get into the details of why she is the way she is. And Sandpoint kind of deserves it because the way the town, a lot of the townsfolk have treated her, they kind of dug their own grave with the, you know, mm -hmm. the whole idea of like, she was a, a beautiful Azamar that everyone was like, well, if you're so pretty, if I just gave you a pinch, I'd have good luck. And, and just. Her her stepfather was an awful person. He was the town's priest of Desna, but that doesn't mean he was a good priest. And I've mm -hmm. mentioned before, he's he did not go to her realm in his afterlife. He went to hell. Um, but uh, a lot of the backstory for Nuala is something that the player characters are never going to be able to really discover because it's so hidden away in like the the town's inner shame. But it's, it was important for me for the uh, the GM to realize why she's doing what she's doing, and personally, I mean that's something I'd I'd like to explore is is going back to Sandpoint and exploring the town's you know guilt at like well they they've had time now to like look over why this happened and realizing that you know they kind of did it to themselves. So, um, and we are about out of time. Uh, do you think we have any any last minute bits of advice about? writing adventures or anything you might might any anything you maybe want to do in the future like a location or a plot or a genre you want to explore oh uh, my let's gosh start with there's Vanessa. there's two and I'll, I'll give you the the quick notes on each of them i would love to do a fern gelly-esque adventure where you're in like the forests of andorin with the fae hanging out and having fun uh you know you're, you're friends with them and the loggers come back and it's like we had an agreement that you would do sustainable logging and they're like yeah we decided not to and now you have to defend the forest and essentially like that's just book one and you kind of become champion of the fae and even the fae in the first world start to hear about your heroics and they're like well we need heroes and then you get to go fight them and then there's this like uh battle between the clipoffs who have kind of been re relegated to the the edges of the abyss by uh demons that have come in to take their place and they're looking for like somewhere else to to have as a home and they've decided to invade uh the uh the first world and so you kind of have a conflict of like way too much life against absolute nothing um and and that conflict of like how do you how do you fight against something like that also because they are always so ephemeral and beautiful it's kind of interesting to have a villain that is just absolutely horrific and i would love that adventure uh the other one and i'll just give you the, the elevator pitch is an adventure that is like 
uh, someone called it around the world in 80 levels, uh, where you have your party goes on a, a race around Galarian. And it's really a, a travelogue sort of adventure where you get to go to a lot of different locales and a lot of different places. Uh, I'm thinking probably starting in Alkenstar, maybe flying one of their airships and just trying to, you know, trying to be the first one there, running into problems along the way. And do you, uh, do you make allies in the race or do you make rivals? And how do you, how do you deal with that? Cool. One real quick in, uh, interjection there. Uh, that was originally the path for the first second edition adventure path. Uh, instead of Age of Ashes, oh, really? the idea was a round the world, uh, sort of around the world in 80 days plot. And uh, that was, uh, that didn't go very far because we were worried that people would be looking for reasons to not play the game anymore. It's like, well, we're not doing things familiar. So it's, <laughs> that it's makes definitely sense why you would go with Age of Ashes. But yeah. yeah. Uh, Leo, anything for you real quick? Yeah, I'll go real fast. Uh, I really like the region. Uh, I really like Nermothus, and I actually have been plotting out uh, when I wasn't writing. I was working on an editor game uh, that would explore uh, independence, cause like I said, uh, and freedom. And I love Cheliax and Multhoon and a lot of the uh, relationship there with Nermothus. And also, I, I, I've always loved Druids and Rangers and that side of, of our canon. And I would love to just sort of explore what uh, independence looks like when you have sort of fey and nature and those threats, but also society and trying to establish freedom at the same time. Uh, there's just some really cool, I think, interplay of concepts there. And the, the other thing that I'm always in love with, and one of the reasons why I loved working on dinner at, at Lion Lodge uh, with you, James, uh, is uh, could we do more with uh, uh, non-traditional characters uh, uh and player characters who might be of of different you know monstrous ancestries and things like that i would love to maybe write a module or something that was all undead uh i don't know but just uh, those types of things really uh interest me too cool um real quick my the thing i'd like to do really uh, a lot maybe it's a high level adventure path is one where the player characters have to get together in elysium and put on a play for desna and uh <laughs> potentially like have really the entire oh, no i'm thinking an adventure path where you go from 11th to 20th level and all of the encounters are best resolved without combat so and lean into the whimsy element of things so i mean just kind of like do a lot of things that haven't really been done in a high level adventure path i guess anyway uh thank you uh vanessa thank you leo for hanging out with me and answering questions uh people have we didn't really get a lot of time to answer questions but i'm going to be hanging out in the uh a Galarian Adventures Discord uh, channel for a bit after this. So, um, I and e if you have any questions for any of us, I think all do all three of us have AMAs going on. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we're going to be around for the, the rest of the the convention virtually. So, if you have any questions about adventures or anything like that, uh, don't be a stranger. We're here to we're here to chatter. Uh, thank hey. you, everybody. Bye. Farewell.